Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on January 29th of 2012 under the headline, 40-Day Debauch Made Oregon Legislature Nationally Notorious. Here we go. The 1896 election had been good to Portland businessman and politician Jonathan Bourne Jr. He had gotten himself elected to a seat in the Oregon House with good chance to become Speaker. Of course, there had been some irregularities. But then, of course, there had. This was Oregon, after all. Bourne was in his early thirties, outgoing and well-liked, with cocky eyes and a mustache that had to be seen to be believed. His father owned Bourne Mills, a clothing manufacturer in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and also a small fleet of whaling ships. Young Jonathan had dropped out of Harvard and gone to sea on one of those ships and ended up shipwrecked off China. It was on his way home from Hong Kong in 1885 that he discovered Portland. Something about the town's wide-open character appealed to young Jonathan. According to a letter from fellow legislator Abraham Lafferty, upon arriving, he arranged to tour the town by hiring a cab and driving around town, quote, accompanied by the leading lady of a traveling show and with an ice bucket filled with champagne bottles sitting in front of them in the cab. As you can imagine, Bourne soon had a motley collection of good friends and kindred spirits all along the town's shady waterfront, especially its notorious North End, north of Stark Street, where by popular consensus all the hardcore vice operators were supposed to stay, tucked out of the sight of more respectable Portlanders. Sailor's boarding house operator and Shanghai artist Larry Sullivan was probably the best known of the bunch. The owners of numerous seedy waterfront saloons and whorehouses and opium dens made up the others. Together, these shady entrepreneurs and entrepreneuses catered to the lowest caste of people in Portland, sailors and hobos, along with itinerant loggers and lumbermen. Clever lad that he was, Bourne quickly figured out that these desperate wastrels, scorned by many as the dregs of society, were the source of tremendous political power. In the election of 96, Bourne tapped that power to the fullest. Hundreds and hundreds of sailors, just passing through loggers, hookers, and saloon bums, were eager to earn the price of a drink or six by casting ballot after ballot for Bourne and his friends, a plan that propelled Bourne to power in the House of Representatives, accompanied by enough friendly faces to make it pretty likely he'd be named Speaker. Ensuring the re-election of his pick for U.S. Senate, John Mitchell, was quite a bit more expensive, but just as easy. In those days, the state legislature picked the state's senators, so all he had to do was secure written pledges of support for Mitchell from a majority of legislators and pay for those pledges with fat campaign contributions, underwritten to the tune of $225,000 by the Southern Pacific Railroad. Easily done, and quickly, too. All in all, it had been a big success. But shortly after the election in November, Bourne learned something was about to happen that would utterly ruin it for him. 
Soon after the election, he started hearing rumors that U.S. Senator John Mitchell planned to abandon his support for the silver standard for U.S. currency and switch his allegiance to gold. Why, you might ask, would Bourne care about something like that? Well, Bourne was the owner of several silver mines in eastern Oregon and Idaho. He was passionately committed to the silver standard because, well, it was great for the silver business. Hearing that Senator Mitchell was about to switch allegiance and throw in his lot with the gold crowd was a shocker. The next time Bourne saw Mitchell, he asked him straight out, and Mitchell reluctantly admitted it. It was a serious double cross, and both men knew it. But elder statesman Mitchell must have been a bit taken aback by the youthful Bourne's reaction. Quote, I looked him straight in the face and I said, you are not going to be elected by this legislative body that meets next January. Bourne recalled, according to former Governor Walter Pierce's account. The senator replied, Jonathan, you can't stop me. You took the pledges from the men who were candidates when you gave them the money for their expenses for the campaign, and you took those pledges to the Southern Pacific Railroad, which put up the $225,000 that you distributed among candidates for the legislature. Those pledges have been signed. They are locked up in the Southern Pacific Railroad safe. You can't help it. I will be elected. Bourne knew Mitchell was right about one thing. There was nothing he would be able to do to change the way the vote would go when the subject of Mitchell's re-election came up. Odd though it sounds to the modern ear, the politicos who signed those pledges at Bourne's urging considered that to be their word of honor as gentlemen, even though in signing them they had been violating several federal laws and essentially swindling their constituents. Regardless of Mitchell's changed plans, they would vote for him. However, If the legislature failed to elect anyone in time for Inauguration Day, the governor was supposed to appoint somebody. And the governor at that time, Republican William P. Lord, was a friend of Bourne's. All Bourne had to do was figure out how to prevent the legislature from voting until Inauguration Day. Now, how might he do that? He did it with classic Bourne flair. First, he collected together about $80,000, including ten grand skimmed from the operations of his North End friends' waterfront, gambling joints and opium dens and brothels and Shanghai boarding houses, and used it to throw a massive six-week-long drunken party for his fellow legislators in the State House of Representatives. The party would rage for 40 days and 40 nights in an unholy, if unconscious, parody of the biblical account of Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness. Quote, I hired the best chef in the state of Oregon, sent him to Salem to fix up apartments in the Eldridge block, things to eat and drink and entertainment, Born later recalled. I said to the chef, I pay all expenses. I want to take care of all my friends in the lower house who signed pledges with me, the friends of silver. The chef probably didn't come from the North End, but some of the entertainment clearly did. The Eldridge Block quickly developed some colorful new nicknames. Bourne's Harem was one. The Den of Prostitution and Evil was another. State Senator George C. Brownell of Oregon City wrote disapprovingly that legislators at Bourne's party, quote, were kept drunk and intoxicated for days. The Honorable Senator Brownell, of course, was not one of the Friends of Silver and presumably therefore not invited to the party. This was the 40-day debauch that went down in song and legend as the hold-up session. 
By Inauguration Day, nothing had come out of the State House at all, on Mitchell's re-election or on any other topic. So as Bourne had planned, Governor Lord announced the appointment of one of Bourne's closest political allies, Henry Corbett, to Mitchell's Senate seat. Corbett was delighted, of course. He had long cherished hopes of being elected to the Senate again. Alas, when he arrived in Washington, he met a chilly reception. Stories of the hold-up session had preceded him, and Capitol Hill was a Twitter with them. The U.S. Senate refused to seat him. A crestfallen Corbett had to return to Portland, and Oregon's second Senate seat remained vacant for two full years. Finally, in late 1898, a special session of the legislature elected Joseph Simon, another close associate of Bourne's, to Mitchell's seat. Mitchell was done for. Bourne had won and had earned for Oregon a reputation for political corruption that wouldn't fade for decades. By the way, this article was rewritten and expanded into one of the chapters of Wicked Portland, the book. For more details on Bourne's gambit and his adventures as an Oregon politician, particularly on his abrupt transformation from corrupt politician to earnest reformer, take a look at chapters 2 and 9 of Wicked Portland, The Wild and Lusty Underworld of a Frontier Seaport Town, published in 2012 by the History Press. Key sources in this story have included works by E. Kimbark McCall and Walter M. Pierce. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.